I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and I'm here to try to answer your questions to the best of my ability on theology, apologetics, and following Jesus. And my goal in this ministry, this online ministry that I'm doing, is to help people learn to think biblically about everything. And I do that by teaching and defending a biblical view of things. And so um, here we are. This is the Q&A stream. So I'm going to go to your guys' questions from the live chat. That's what we'll be doing tonight. Uh, so I'm just basically waiting for those to come in. While I'm waiting for those to come in, some of those questions to come in through AJ, one of my mods. And by the way, thank you mods for being there. You guys are a huge blessing to me. I appreciate you taking the time to do this and partner with me in this ministry. Um, I'll, uh, I'll just mention something real quick that I've just been thinking about today, just to kind of give us some time to bring those questions in. And um, oh, I should mention, uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, then do so and click that bell icon, that little bell icon after you click subscribe, that means you get notifications when I go live or when I make a new video. Otherwise, you'll only get notifications when YouTube thinks a video I make happens to appeal to you personally based on your view history. But if you wanna know about every video, well then you click that little button. Um, so one of the things I've been thinking about recently was um, the culture war. We have kind of like a, a culture war uh, over Christianity that's going on between like conservatives, progressives, conservatives and liberals, or however you want to call it, whatever categories you want to give these different groups of people. And I think there's something fundamentally flawed about how some of us think about this sort of culture war. It's like asking which culture gets to win Christianity, which culture can, culture can take Christianity and shape it into its image. But if we're going to let God's word be God's word, we should not be even asking such a question. We should really be saying, Lord, I'm going to come to the text of the Bible I'm going to come to the, the person of Jesus Christ and I'm going to ignore my culture entirely. I'm going to find out what you say about things. And then after I have done my Bible homework, right? My biblical worldview homework, then I will ask, how does that affect my culture? And through that, I transcend this whole culture discussion. So if it comes to issues like racism or gender identity or um, environmental concerns or um, you know, the, the, the size and reach of government and, and equality in different areas, all these types of issues. I just, this is what I try to do anyways. I just try to partition all the political stuff, set it to the side, open the Bible, let the word of God speak to me. Then I come back with my biblical worldview and I can discern what pieces of culture I can reject or accept based upon the text of scripture. And I just think this is like a fundamental difference between how a lot of people are doing it today. A lot of people today are saying, um, come on, it's 2019. And they notice they've always said that. Could you, could you imagine people like in 1539, they were like, come on, it's 1539, get with the times. Um, we have this sort of, um, you know, egotism about, our, about present day, like, oh, we're enlightened. We're always enlightened. And everybody who lived before us is always, you know, unenlightened. Uh, no, you want to be enlightened, open the light of God's word, let it change the way you view things, and then approach culture from that perspective. That, that would be my recommendation. So I'm going to go to your guys' questions and um, I've already got several coming in. I, I, I acknowledge ahead of time, I won't be able to answer every question, but I'll get to as many as I can. Uh, please don't hold it against me if your question gets left out. But if you do have a question, put a capital Q in the live chat. Most of you know this and I will try and uh, get to as many as possible today, which means shorter answers so I can answer more questions. Uh, first, last, uh, well, uh, welcome Again, first last for joining me. I know you're with me a lot. Um, is it okay for a church to solely discipleship services for physical needs and non-faith related community activities instead of a balance of discipleship, evangelism, and service? Um, I think that I, the, the way the question's worded, I'm not sure if I fully understand it, so forgive me as I, I just take a stab at it. Um, the way I'm understanding the question is, is it okay for churches to, um, to focus just on discipling their um, their people versus doing community services and community-related things. I just think we have to keep the main thing the main thing and that a lot of other stuff is all acceptable and good. Like, can the church do good things? Absolutely. Can that be hosting a community cleanup party? Yeah, sure, no problem with that. My problem is when, when the church, and I hope this answers your question, when the church, uh, the local fellowship, we set the gospel aside and we focus primarily on doing good things in the community without preaching the gospel. And we think that somehow people will just sort of know the gospel or the Holy Spirit will do it without us, um, which, which is not good theology. 
it's not good teaching. <laughs> but, but here's an example from the scripture to help support this idea. Imagine if Jesus went to a town and he healed all their sick, but he didn't preach. Right? He heals the sick. He then leaves the town. He never preaches. And then the disciples are like, Jesus, aren't you going to tell him about the coming kingdom? Aren't you going to tell him about, you know, that Sermon on the Mount thing was kind of great. You know, you're going to, you're going to teach it to them or what? And Jesus says, oh, no, no. I just want them to know we're Christians by our love. I just want them to know that I care for them. So I heal them and I leave. Because if I, if I say things that might be seen as offensive to them, they might not receive me. But the truth is, if Jesus doesn't preach at all, they definitely won't receive him because they don't even know what receiving him is. So it's when we when we make the um, the community things uh, something that we do instead of the gospel, or we don't consider them as simply something we're doing to point to Christ, you know, in a, in a legitimate way, not in a vague, oh, the Holy Spirit will make it work. Um, that's not what I see in scripture. I see people preaching. I see him telling people about Jesus. I see him getting getting people offended, getting kicked out of towns and going to a new town, you know, and their main thing is the gospel. Their main thing is discipling the believers. Their, their main thing is not PR for the church. That's not the main thing. So I think that's important. Um, but yeah, so we do discipleship. Our main posture towards believers is discipling them as the church, raise them up in Christ. Our main posture towards non-believers is evangelism, not helping the community. Helping the community is good. It's just not the thing. So evangelism, evangelism should permeate all, all else I do. And I know that's not popular, but I think that it's the biblical perspective. Um, Hannah Banana has a question, says, Hi, Mike, would you consider books such as 23 Minutes in Hell or 90 Minutes in Heaven theologically accurate? You know, um, Hannah, I haven't looked deeply into most of these works, um, and I haven't really been compelled to, like I haven't felt any desire to. So I just haven't really looked deeply into them. Um, I will say this, the ones that I have you know, gone into more deeply. I haven't like 23 minutes in hell, that one specifically, specifically 90 minutes in heaven. I haven't looked into those, but other stories over the years, when I do look into them, I have found consistently that their descriptions of heaven or, or whatever else, hell or something, they tend to veer away from scripture. Um, they, they tend to be strange to me. And that's the problem. See, once someone goes, I visit heaven, I visited heaven, I visited hell, they become the guru to tell you the inside knowledge. And if their inside knowledge is disagreeing with scripture, oh, I'm going to take God's word every time over that. Now, that being said, I don't think there's anything wrong with someone saying, I have experienced God's presence. I died and experienced God's presence. And I've actually had like a buddy of mine who he died on the operating table. He had a heart condition. And he was in the presence of God, he says. He was worshiping the Lord. It was, it was amazing. And, and it just gave him such peace. Um, and he had a heart condition that would probably cost his life later in the future. And he just, he was like, I'm good with it. I'm just going to serve Jesus until I go home. And the thing is, he brought no, no guru teachings. It was just, it seemed legit. And I'm saying if, if I test it with what I understand from scripture, the way he described things, I go, yeah, that seems legit. Um, so the danger is these people becoming like these gurus where they're replacing the Bible on inside knowledge. And that, I think, is a danger, is a problem when we should be using the Bible to test them, not them to test the Bible the other way around. Also, I can't help but notice um, how some of these stories have been debunked later on. Only some of them doesn't mean all of them. So in my opinion, there's legitimate ones and illegitimate ones. We use the Bible to tell us, that doesn't sound right. I'm going to set that one aside. Boy, that sounds biblical. I don't need that information, but I can add it to the stuff that I've already got, you know, in that sense, I can have it, find it encouraging and edifying. So yeah, I hope that helps. Um, our wholesome home asks a question, two favorite prophecies that even atheists might think, whoa, when they hear. Um, okay. So one of my favorites is uh, Ezekiel's prophecy of the destruction of Tyre. This is so amazing. The, the detail of it is intense. And I have a video on this online. Um, it's, it's, Ezekiel prophesying about the city Tyre and how it will be destroyed, which didn't happen for hundreds of years. And it was destroyed in a peculiar and strange fashion. It was said that this city would not only be destroyed, but that the, the city itself, the buildings of the city would be thrown into the ocean. That's weird, right? Like this, we don't do this with cities. Like when you conquer cities, you don't throw them into the ocean. And yet it was fulfilled later by Alexander the Great. We have the fulfillment of it recorded in non, uh, non-Jewish and non-Christian sources and so we have an event clearly prophesied ahead of time, a detailed fulfillment, and we have confirmation of it through extra biblical and non, non-Christian, non-Jewish sources, which is really profound to me. Another really good example is Isaiah 53. Um, 
you can just read Isaiah 53 to people and they will not even realize this was written before Jesus came. The parallels are so intense. And when you study it in great detail, you realize it's way stronger than you thought it was on the surface. Um, Another example, Psalm 22. I think Psalm 22 lists like these specific points of correspondence between Jesus's crucifixion um, and the psalm itself, which was written before crucifixion existed. Um, we're talking, you know, like 900s BC, and then crucifixion hundreds of years later is invented. Then Jesus dies by crucifixion, but the psalm goes beyond that and predicts what will happen after the crucifixion. And it implies strongly a resurrection. And it implies that Gentiles around the world will turn to the God of Israel as a result of this thing that Psalm 22 talks about. We also have uh, ancient Jewish sources that talk about how Psalm 22 was messianic. And and I have a video on that as well, Psalm 22. Those are, I'll give you three examples. I think those are really, really neat. Um, Okay, uh, we have uh, Samuel. Oh, by the way, I'll mention this too. Um, Atheists might think woe when they hear it. I don't know what they'll think. And we have to remind ourselves that while we can present truth, Our job isn't to change people's minds. It's their job to change their mind. And that's what God holds them accountable for. We present truth, we share true things, and we build a case sometimes or we just preach the truth. And it's their job to change their mind. And I think we can put an unnecessary burden upon ourselves if we think it's our job to actually make them believe certain things, which is something you can't do. Um, Anyway, just a a side note there. Samuel Park says, uh, hey, Pastor Mike, what do you believe about the soul? Do you believe in a soul as a form of the body like Catholics do or like a ghost in the machine sort of deal? Thanks. You know, I'm not familiar with what exactly Catholic theology teaches about the nature of the soul or if, if that's like official church teaching. I don't, I, so I can't comment on that. Um, but I, 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 I'm a, a dualist. So I think that we have you know, I have a, I have a brain, the physical matter of it, you know, but then I have a soul and that is different than my mind. I'm inclined to think that the soul is, it uses the brain to do thinking and interacting with reality. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that also accounts for when people have a neurological condition and it, 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 it harms their, their ability to function in the real world. The soul is the thing that's, um, using this body to interact with the world but the soul is different and it exists apart from the body. When the body's not there, the soul is still there. And we, I think we have strong biblical evidence for this in multiple places. Um, just think about the idea of being caught up in the spirit somewhere, being brought somewhere other than your body to see something. And we have that multiple times in the Bible and that seems to support like a dualist kind of a view. So that's my perspective. And there's definitely people debate this and there's those who would not agree with me on it. And yeah, but that, that would be my, my perspective on it. Um, Star Welters has a question. Uh, Mike, what, uh, will you ever do a video on confirmation bias? Um, maybe. I've never honestly thought about it. A video on confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the thing that um, everyone accuses everybody else of. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, which ironically, the people you think are guilty of confirmation bias, sometimes that's just your confirmation bias that's saying that. So it's, it's our, our, our willingness to... Um, maybe overlook certain details or, or jump to unwarranted conclusions because we already believe certain things. But that's different than saying that we have good reason to believe certain things and that helps us determine, get conclusions about other things that are slightly less known. That's a whole different kind of thing. And um, anyway, I don't know. Maybe I'll do a video on it. Maybe not. It's not high on my list at the moment though. Matthew Webb says, if you want to get involved with apologetics, how does one go about getting the primary source info? How do I find objective evidences in a sea of biased content online? Matthew, I got one huge piece of evidence for you. Footnotes. Look at the footnotes. You will often find when you're researching this content online, if there's no footnotes at all, especially for research material, like, you know, when you're, you're looking, you're looking deeply so you can do maybe presentations like I do. Um, you'll often find that, that they'll have footnotes and then you follow the footnote and go look up that resource. And that resource sometimes has a footnote. And after a while, you start to see these footnotes come together. And for major issues, there's really maybe two or three different sources a lot of people are really going after, whether it's be whether it be like original ancient writings or if it be sort of like the seminal thinkers, the guys who really pushed that thing and really, really made their case strong. And then you can read that guy. So I, I recommend footnotes. Check out the footnotes. Um, I spend sometimes as much time in the, se- in the footnote section of a work than I do... Uh, as I do in the main body 
of the work itself. And I found that to be really helpful for me. Yeah. Um, Samuel Park says on, uh, on one of Cameron's uh, recent Twitter posts, many atheists seem to say the Kalam is a bad argument, that it has been thoroughly debunked, but I don't think so. How, uh, what, what do you make of this? Um, Samuel Park, that is so... I'm glad you brought that up. So those of you who don't know, Cam Cameron is Cameron Bertuzzi uh, with the YouTube channel Capturing Christianity and the website Capturing Christianity. I think it's .com, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he, and he's got great stuff and he's putting out more great stuff all the time. He does more philosophically focused things and it's I, I'm excited for the content he's continuing to produce. And he's hoping to go full-time. So people who want to support him on Patreon, if, if you love what he's doing, you might consider doing that. Um, okay, well... The Kalam cosmological argument, and I'm going to, off the top of my head, try to remember how it works, the premises. Okay, so the first premise of the argument, it's a syllogism, which means it's a, it's it's got three lines in the argument. Uh, there's two premises, and they bring you to a logical conclusion. And so the first one is, hey, um, it doesn't say, hey, that was, I added that. Um, whatever begins to exist has a cause. That's the first line of the argument. And I think that's solidly true. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Things don't just begin to exist uncaused, or else they would be beginning to exist uncaused all the time like you'd open a jar of peanut butter after leaving it alone for a week and you'd find a smurf dancing around and eating peanut butter like things don't just begin to exist without a cause that seems pretty solid there's a long string of arguments that you can offer to support that line two of the kalam cosmological argument is the universe began to exist and this is supported by philosophical argumentation against past eternal universe and it's also supported by scientific discoveries so the science is is helping add credence to premise number two and he t and uh william lane craig in his work uh, reasonable faith he his, that's a book he wrote he goes into detailed analysis of this and he talks about like different models of the universe and big bang theory and oscillating theory and um the oscillating universe and all these different things bubble universes and he gets into all that stuff in his book so you have those two premises uh you know whatever begins to exist has a cause and the universe began to exist so the conclusion is pretty obvious right the conclusion is, therefore, the universe has a cause. There you go. It's a simple argument. It's it's on its surface. It looks true. And when you examine it carefully, it also looks true. Then you argue from, okay, well, what could cause the universe? Now that we've established this idea of the universe has, has a cause, what could cause the universe? Well, the universe is time, space, matter, energy. So whatever caused the universe will be timeless. Uh, it will not be bound by space. It'll transcend space in some sense. It will be um, immaterial. Uh, because all matter is part of the universe as far as we can tell, which makes seems like a reasonable conclusion. And then uh, finally, it'll be incredibly powerful. Then there's arguments. So that sounds like God, right? So we've got, you know, God's eternal. God is transcendent. God is immaterial. And God is all powerful. This sounds a lot like God. Then he has arguments for why this cause would be personal. And um, it's just really neat, all the argumentation that goes in there. When I've seen atheists try to debunk the Kalam cosmological argument, um, or I should say just people trying to debunk it. It's not only atheists, but they're the more vocal group online doing this. It's some of, it's it's honestly, it's really bad thinking. Um, it's really poor logic. And William Lane Craig has spent a large portion of his career defending the Kalam cosmological argument against every conceivable objection. So he's, and he's written papers, done like scholarly works and published papers on this. And you can go look them up and I encourage you to do it. But also there's a video on YouTube called, um, I think it's called like objections so bad I couldn't make them up or something like that. But it's William Lane Craig and he talks about the Kalam and he deals with internet objections that they were so bad. He didn't want to write them in a paper. He didn't want to try to do a scholarly response. He's just dealing with, and those are the objections you're actually dealing with here. So look, look for that video. Uh, maybe someone could find it. Uh, one of the mods, if you can find it and put it in the, in the live chat, great resource. I would, I would recommend checking that out. And by the way, I should mention, um, I now have officially available the bible thinker mugs <laughs> it's so it feels a little goofy to have these but i'm really grateful for them it just feels goofy to be like presenting mugs the reason why i'm doing this um i'll tell you you can buy them there's a link in the description if you want to get them um a, a gentleman named brent zogel who's got his own uh, business making like ceramics and stuff like that he sent me a mug like this uh several months ago maybe a year ago just to say thank you for the content i do online then when he knew I was trying to go full-time, he's like, maybe this can help support you to go full-time with this online ministry. I'll make a line of mugs for you. If people want them, they can buy them. It's like 30 bucks a mug. That includes shipping if you're in the continental US and it's down in the link, in the link below. 
and it may seem a little pricey. Part of that's because it's his business, but he wants to be able to have, be able to send me some of the profit that comes from it. And um, the reason why I'm doing that is because of this. I want my ministry to be free. I want all my teaching content to be free. I mean, all of it. And if I make stuff in the future, my hope, my goal is to make it free, freely accessible online. That's the idea. Well, I have to find a way to pay the bills to keep doing this. So people either donating through BibleThinker.org to support this ministry or little things like this, just it'll help a little bit. Um, so, so it's there because I figure nobody needs, nobody needs this mug. No one's losing out on ministry if they don't get this mug. So it's something I can present that will not put a paywall between you and the free content that I keep producing. And that's the purpose there. So there's, so there's a couple different models. Here's another one back here. A um, couple different models. I'll show you. Wait, if I can figure out how cameras work. Um, yeah, a couple different models here we've got. And yeah, you can go online and check them out. Everyone will be a little different because they're done by, um, uh, they're not like mass produced in some way. Anyway, that's all I got to say about that. So let's look at the next question. And that is um, number eight. Hilly Devries says, is the idea of a modern of modern day apostles biblical? Well, Hilly, I have spent some time on this. And um, I'm going to say sort of, but probably not in the way that most people are using the term. So modern day apostles, my understanding, right? Scripture tells us that that there's these apostles and I'll say apostles capital A so I can make a distinction between two different kinds of apostles. And these are like the, the 12 and who then get sent out. And then we have a few others who are mentioned like Paul. Um, but then we also have some who are mentioned like Barnabas and Luke who are also called apostles, but they don't, it, we're not, it's not clear that they carry the same kind of authority that the original apostles carried. Uh, Luke, for instance, called an apostle, yet he doesn't see fit to add anything to the teachings he's bringing. He just records what was already said by the apostles before him. I think that those people were the uh, official representatives of Christ after his ascension, and they established the truths of the Christian faith in writing and preaching. And after that, the way that we hold to the apostles' teaching is by holding to the text of the New Testament, holding to the Bible. That's the way I hold to the apostles' teaching. There are some um, who, like, in, like Bill Johnson, in, in one of his videos, he's it's weird because he doesn't clearly say it, but in analyzing his statements, he seems to be saying, staying in the apostles' teaching means finding modern-day people who are apostles and staying under their teaching. And I think that is completely false. I think it's just utterly wrong. I don't see any biblical basis for it. It's definitely not what that passage means in context. So I, I think that the apostles lay the foundation for the church. And now the church continues to be built on that foundation. We don't need a new set of apostles to build a new foundation. That's the unchangeable thing. And they don't have the authority. And so a bunch of weirdness that comes around that. Now, there's another sense in which we can use the word apostle. And um, that's because the word it means it means to send out. Apostolo is the Greek. It means I, I am sending out. That's what it means. And so if someone's a missionary, they're like an apostle in the sense that they're being sent out. And they're doing apostolic type things in that they're planting churches, bringing the gospel and the doctrines of Christianity to people. But they're not doing it from their own authority like the apostles did. They're doing it from the apostles' authority, bringing the scripture, bringing the teachings of the word. So modern day apostles in general... Uh, no, I don't like the phrase. And I don't like the way I see people using it. I don't think that that's biblical. Um, but the, the word itself can be used in a flexible sense to refer to someone who has like a missionary type endeavor. Um, however, people who think apostle means I'm over 300 churches. I'm an apostle now. Like I, I think that's just odd. And I don't, I don't see that justified in scripture. Um, yep. Kenneth Powers has a question. Says, First uh, John 4, 2, every spirit. Here, let me bring up 1 John 4, 2. 1 John 4, 2. Okay, we'll read the verse and then we'll read the question so we have it fresh in our minds. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, so um, here's the question. Can this test really be considered sufficient? What about those claiming to speak by the Spirit and readily confess Jesus Christ but push false teaching? Um, so I think that part of the nature of this is is in more thoughtfully examining this this concept. Every 
spirit that confesses this. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's a big doctrinal statement in a very short sentence. Jesus. So it has to be the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the biblical Jesus. Okay, not just anybody. I believe in Jesus and they have some weird reinterpretation of who he really is. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah, which brings all the theology of who Jesus is, of him being the Messiah, of him being the sacrifice for our sins, of him being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and all that kind of thing. Um, He has come. He has actually come and he's come in the flesh. And so we have his, his, um, his incarnation. We have his identity and his incarnation, his actual behavior, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead. This is all implied in the idea of Jesus, who, who is Christ, who's come in the flesh. So I'll give an example. Um, Brian Zond, who I've, I've talked about before, Brian Zond would say that he, he feels he can ask Jesus, he can read the Bible and he can ask Jesus if what he read is really accurate or not. And I, I played a video clip where he says this and he, and then he tells others, this is the right way to go about it. Like you read the text and you go, Jesus, is that, is that right? And then you kind of go with that spirit that you're communicating with that's kind of telling you. Except he's literally asking Jesus if he's not the Messiah at that point. Because the truth of Christ as Messiah means he's fulfilling the Old Testament. It's all tied together, old and new. There is no version of Jesus that throws out the Bible. Meaning, I can test that spirit and say, if I feel some spirit is telling me that Jesus is disagreeing with the text of scripture, then I can throw that out. That is not from God because he is, he is Jesus. He is the Christ. He has come in the flesh. Um, so there's, there's more to it than that, than, than just seeing these as little phrases, but seeing this as the deep theology of who Jesus is. Um, so that doesn't, however, mean we're talking about spirits, not people testing spirits, not people. So I can test the spirit that I think is communicating with me and go, Oh, that is not the Lord. That doesn't, however, mean that we test people in identical fashions. So if someone comes to you and they say, I confess that Jesus, the Christ has come in the flesh. Therefore, everything else I say is of God. No, that's not what we're saying at all. People and spirits, we're testing them in different ways. I, I hope that that helps. I feel like more can be said about that, but I think that, I think that if you Go back and listen again and realize that I I think I've given you the bullet points that would help you apply this in a more practical fashion. Um, Yeah, so they won't be able to push false teaching that way. All right, number 10. Practical Faith says, when are you going to write a book? (laughs) I have no idea, man. I have no idea. Um, At the moment, I'm in a season right now where I'm going to solely focus on producing this online content two, maybe more times a week just teaching, 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 getting this out there. And maybe in the future, I'll cut back on some of the online stuff so I can focus on maybe other platforms, writing a book, that kind of thing. Uh, but at the moment, I really think this is what God would have me do. And all I can do is is pursue that. Um, okay, Matthew Webb says, does God change with culture? As time passes in the scriptures, it seems as though God's punishment for sins um, to the people of time lessens in intensity. He kills many in the Old Testament and not so in the New Testament. Okay, so I would say, first off, um, when comparing the Old and New Testaments, there's, I hope I can remember my categories here, two issues. I'll bring up two issues. When comparing Old and New Testament, God's behavior and judgments in one versus the other. Two issues. Just two issues. One issue is this. The Old Testament covers a massive amount of history. Thousands of years, right? At a minimum. We're, We're talking massive amounts of human history. So we're seeing God's judgment and then huge times in between where we're not seeing God's judgment. And we're seeing God's delayed judgment, like with the Amalekites, Moabites, the Canaanites. God delays judgment for hundreds of years before judging them. In the New Testament, we're seeing a very brief window of time in the first century. And we're not even being told whatever God might have been doing elsewhere in the world at the time. So we don't really have a fair comparison between the two at this point. That's one issue. There's another issue. (laughs) The other issue is that the New Testament actually does speak a lot about God's judgment, mostly in the future tense. And it's the judgment that God brings in the book of Revelation that's spoken about in like books like 1 Peter and Jude. The the judgment that God is bringing that we we read about like 1 Thessalonians, that judgment is much, much worse than anything we see in the Old Testament. It's much worse. So we, the second issue is we're not actually comparing apples to apples when we say um, that, uh, that God's judgments were worse here versus here. They're actually more extreme 
more extreme. They're eternal judgments, right? Eternal judgments. Not, and the whole planet is being judged. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, what we see with the Old Testament, though, sometimes is we see a focus on the temporal. And with the new, we see a focus on the eternal. So we see judgments on like one nation for one time. But in the Revelation, we're reading about judgment that goes on for eternity. So it casts into the lake of fire and you know those who were going into eternal darkness versus eternal glory. So it's like an eternal final thing. So the judgments of the old versus the new are um, stronger in the new, as well as the rewards and the blessings are stronger in the new. Everything's dialed up. The love of God, the mercy of God, and the wrath of God are all dialed up in the New Testament. And if you read the whole New Testament with, with just read it as it is. Like the problem is a lot of us have only heard snippets of Jesus's teachings and out of context verses from the epistles, but we haven't read the New Testament and seen how extreme the future is for all people, those who receive or those who reject. So that would be some of the things I would say um, about that. Okay, let me find my spot again. Um, the question here is from uh, Christian Ayers. Is the Sabbath Saturday or Sunday? Does it matter for Gentiles? Um, the short answer is the Sabbath is Saturday. And um, it, it matters for Gentiles because we love each other and we want to fellowship with people who care about the Sabbath. And so we should bear the burden of their concerns in order to fellowship with them. That would be my, my answer there. Romans 14 gets into great detail on this and it specifically talks about the Sabbath or the observance of certain days. Um, we also have uh, Colossians that talks about it as well. And the bottom line is, since we're doing a quick Q&A here, we are free to observe or not observe the Sabbath. It's a free thing. But we should always keep in mind the conscience of our brothers and sisters around us. If I went to a church where they all observe the Sabbath, I would observe it too because I love them. That's what I would do. Um, and and uh, and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of confusion about the Sabbath. That's the short, short answer there. I don't think the Sabbath moved from Saturday to Sunday. I don't think we can say that. The early church gathered on Sunday, but the early Jewish church gathered on Saturday and Sunday. I mean, they just gathered on both. The synagogue one day and then they gathered together. And eventually um, with the, the Gentiles being brought in, they kept that Sunday gathering, but they didn't continue always doing the Saturday gathering because um, they were not being brought into Jewish Jewish practice or Old Testament um, Old Testament law was was not being placed upon the Gentiles. So there we go. I've got myself in trouble with some people just now, but it's true. So um, Brirving, you have the most interesting YouTube name, B-R-I-R-V-I-N-G, Brirving says, did Jesus have a human body before he came into the world some 2000 years ago? Uh, nope. Uh, no, he definitely did not. I mean, he's eternal God and he had uh, definitely had no human body. There was nothing like that going on when Jesus entered into, before he entered into the world. And that's why we get John chapter one. Um, let's go, let's look at it. Uh, I love, I love John one. So John chapter one, let's just read through it and think of your question as we're reading through it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So we have already, boom, the, tr the Trinity is being forced upon us, um, at least in regards to the Father and the Son in this verse. He's with God, yet he is God. And there's, so there's some distinction, yet there is some uh, sameness that's going on here. He's, he's with God, but is God, and he's the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The bodies are made. They're all part of material existence and reality. So Jesus' body was, was made later. It was crafted later. This, this thing happened later. Um, I'm using, probably using the wrong term to say crafted there, but I think you understand my point. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him. Uh, oh, I already read that. Sorry. Verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Then it talks about John the Baptist. Okay. So we're going to switch gears and talk about John. Then we'll come right back to Jesus. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about that light, the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming in the world, into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become, as I scroll up just for a moment, um, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're getting in this verse here, this passage, Jesus, he's eternal God from time past. He's with God, yet he is God. 
and yet he's coming into the world and he's shining light. And this is the effect of his coming is that it's going to give people the ability to become children of God. He is the light and all that. And then verse 14 explains more about how this happened. It says, and the word, remember that word who was with God and is God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, from the father, full of grace and truth. So this idea is that Jesus, he became flesh. You see, if he was already in a body, he wouldn't have had to become flesh. He became flesh. The only way you could try to make this work is to say that Jesus had a body, which the Bible doesn't talk about. And then he gave up that body and then became flesh. But then he wouldn't even become flesh. He'd be switching flesh, right? Switching one body for another. But no, he became flesh. He came in amongst us. So the incarnation happened 2,000 years ago in real history. Jesus didn't show up with a pre-existent body. He came into a real human body that didn't priorly exist. Uh, so Jacob has a question. Jacob Vashchenko says, Atheists bring up the Hebraic cosmology now with the rise of a flat earth. What is your view on how we interpret the Bible scientifically? So I still have more work to do on this, Jacob, but I'll give you my thoughts right now. Um, I have done some work. Um, in fact, I've got some books back there about ancient ancient cosmologies. And the thing, my, my, my suspicion is this, is that those who say, that the the flat earth and the solid dome and all these things are in the Old Testament, that that they're doing so um, because, not because the Old Testament so clearly teaches it, because I don't think it does. They're doing so because the cosmologies of the people around the Jews of the time, they believed those things. But I have two problems with that. One, I'm not sure those people believed those things. Two, why on earth even if they did, right? Even if that's really what they all believed, all those little details, why on earth would I think that the revelation in the Bible is automatically just teaching the same thing as everybody else? Let me give you an example. When it comes to creation, there's creation stories in non, uh, non-Jewish texts from BC times, right? We're talking like the times of Moses and earlier. We have creation stories and those creation stories are radically different from what we read about in Genesis. In those creation stories, like the Enuma Elish, we have these gods battling and fighting and how um, how Marduk slays, uh, what's her name? I think it starts with an A. Oh, I just escapes right now. He slays her and he just cuts her in half and half her body comes down and it becomes either the ocean or the land or maybe both, I forget. And the other half goes up and becomes the sky. So that in this creation story, Enuma Elish, right, the actual things you're looking at is, is it's like a dead carcass of a god. Whereas the Bible presents in Genesis 1, we realize that the creation is just the creation. Like the sun's not a deified thing. The moon is not deified. The stars are not deified. The earth is not deified. The ocean's not deified. None of these things are. Instead, it's like God, he's the one and he just makes it all. So what we see in Genesis is we see similarities between creation account in Genesis and the, and the Enuma Elish or these other ones. Some surface similarities, but the differences are striking. The differences are saying what the Bible's teaching is totally different than what was believed by the people of the time. And I think that may be the case with other cosmology related issues as well. We just, so we shouldn't assume that because the ancient um, Babylonians or Assyrians or whoever, they believed this thing. Therefore, the Bible teaches it too. That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I have more work to do on this because it gets into a whole bunch of uh, rather complicated things. But that's my impression at the moment. Yeah. Um, so Matrim has a question, uh, Mike Winger, if there is a song that's in the context, uh, that in its context is questionable. However, if we sang, people would interpret it as you singing about God. Is it okay to sing? I'm not sure Matrim that I understand the question. Um, forgive me there. Um, let me give you an example that might be something you're thinking about. There's a song called hallelujah. I think it's just called hallelujah, right? You guys all know the words. Right? I heard there was a secret chord that David played that pleased the Lord. That song. And the secret chord part is 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 baloney, but it's poetically nice baloney, right? But it's not it's not evil, it's just weird and not accurate. But it's but it's poetically really pretty. It's oh a secret chord that David plays that pleased the Lord. It's almost like, you know, it's cute. But not accurate. Um as that song progresses, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, it is a disgusting, perverted song. I'm not kidding. They just took spiritual imagery from the Bible and then turned it into a song that's about sexual things. And um, and it's terrible. It's horrible. 
But some Christians have taken, because that chorus is so beautiful, hallelujah, hallelujah, the chorus just by itself is beautiful, and they sing just the chorus. Or they rewrite the verses and then sing the chorus. Personally, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but, you know, on your own, when you're singing on your own. But if you're going to bring it to a congregation, you need to be sensitive to all the people in the room. Am I stumbling you by doing this? Am I wounding or hurting you by by adding, you know, this song to our repertoire of worship songs when I maybe even change the words? Um, and I think that's something we have to seriously consider. We can't just tell everyone, get over it and be with my musical styles. Um, anyway, those are a couple thoughts. I hope that is somewhat helpful for you. The Monkey says... Um, can you do a biblical look on Arminianism? Um, that would be interesting to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, I'll definitely think about doing that sometime. That's probably going to be quite a long ways out. I have so many things I want to do uh, right now, but thanks for the suggestion. DJ Diner says, um, what do you need prayer for? Um, what do I need prayer for? Thanks, DJ. Uh, boy, what a, what a pleasure to have you guys all able to lift something up. Um, I'm full-time now. We announced it to my church yesterday. I'll do a video talking about this uh, sometime soon within the next couple of weeks, I think I'm full time now. And so I just need prayer for wisdom, direction, and provision for God to take care of those things so that I can continue doing this ministry and keep doing it more and more. Um, that would be the thing I would ask for prayer for. Um, so James Ellinger says, question, uh, what do I tell Christians who tell me that I don't, oh, by the way, I'm still at my church. I'm still a pastor at my church. I'm still serving at my church, but in much lesser capacity because I'm spending most of my time doing this online thing. So I'm even teaching a weekly service at my fellowship. But So don't think I left my church just because I'm not on staff at the, anymore. Different things. Okay, so James Ellinger says, um, What do I tell Christians who tell me that I don't have to keep the Sabbath or I can change it to any day when sin is the transgression of the law? Um, I don't think you can change the Sabbath to any day. Uh, I don't think you can change the Sabbath. I think you can, you can observe any day you want as unto the Lord. You can do that, but that doesn't mean you can change the Sabbath. Um, but yes, sin is the transgression of the law. I think that in my video on, um, maybe I didn't get into this. I think I got into this in my video on, uh, the Hebrew roots movement. There's a misunderstanding. If we take, in my opinion, if we take the word, the law, and we always apply that, we always use that as, um, as the law of Moses. I think there's a misunderstanding there. And I, I will do more content on this in the future. I promise you, I'm not going to tell you when because I always end up getting delayed because other things come up. But I will do more on that. So James, I will say there's a little, hopefully a little bit of help for you. Transgression of the law in First John isn't necessarily, in fact, I would say it's not the Old Testament law. It's about, rather it's any law which God has revealed is true. You know, it's, it's sinning against God's commands, which we have a law. Uh, I'll give you this. In Romans, it talks about Gentiles have a law to themselves. Um, certainly there are those who were aware of right and wrong, God's law, before the law of Moses was given. Um, so law doesn't mean law of Moses in every, in every time you see it in the Bible. Verse 19, uh, verse 19, question 19. Uh, sorry, that's Bible teacher habit there. Um, Honest Conversations says, what are your thoughts on eternal security in Hebrews 6 and 10? Um, way too much for me to be able to get into at the moment. Uh, my cat has an opinion about it though, I think. She's uh yeah she's just gonna do her cat thing, um so uh, Hebrews six and ten I I think that Hebrews ten is pretty easy to reconcile with eternal security, but I think that Hebrews six is the more challenging passage, and I think the best way if you're if you want to hold eternal security to look at Hebrews six the best way that I've seen is to see it as more of a corporate statement about Israel after having received so many of God's blessings, not about individuals who got saved and lost their salvation, but about, about Israel as a group. She's just jumping around my desk right now, Mika. I should have fed them before I did the stream. Um, yeah, so I, I, that's a quick answer. We need way more than that. Uh, most attempts I've seen with Hebrews 6 to explain uh, how it fits with eternal security don't work very well, and so I'm not going to try and try those, to be honest. Um, Agnes Bucasa says, why do some people say that the woman caught in adultery in John 8 is Mary Magdalene? Why stone her, but not the, the man caught with her? Was there a double standard? I don't, um, Agnes, I'm not familiar with reasons they have for thinking that that, that is, um, uh, that that's Mary Magdalene. I've heard it before myself, but I've never heard a good case for it. So in, in the absence of knowing a good case for it, I wouldn't say it is Mary Magdalene. Um, yeah, I, I just wouldn't say that that's the case. 
Um, why stone her, but not the man caught with her? Um, was there a double standard? Of, well, it sure seems like it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there was a double standard in that in that case. Why wasn't the man put there? But but here's the thought. If the man was put there with the woman, I don't think it would have changed how Jesus responded. And that's the main emphasis. Some people teach the passage like it's about the man not being there. And, and that would be, I think, wrong. There's other issues. There's textual issues with John chapter 8. And in that, I've, I've taught about that in my Evidence for the Bible series. So setting that issue, there's textual issues that are significant. We need to look at those. But setting that aside and just, just talking about the content of the passage, um, it may have been a double standard. It might have been that the man, that they caught both of them and the man just ran for it. Um, that, I don't know. That's I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing at things here. We don't know. And so I don't want to go there, to be honest. Um, yeah. Okay. So Ludwig B. says, thoughts on the Orthodox Church. Ludwig, I'm so sorry that I don't have much I can give you on the Orthodox Church because I haven't done my diligence to study what they teach well enough to be able to give real comments on it. So I'll have to pass on that question. Sorry. Uh, PK McNett, uh, how do we as Christians deal with the border illegal immigration issue? What about criminals coming into the U.S.? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I can't answer it simply. As soon as I read the question, I'm thinking of all these layers of issues, right? One layer of issue is how do I treat my neighbor? But that has nothing well, it doesn't have nothing to do with it, but it has it has relatively little to do with governmental policies on illegal immigration. Like that's just different, okay? Um yeah, what about criminals coming into the US? Like I'll just say this, uh PK, I'm, my thing is not politics and I don't know the issues well enough to try to weigh in on them. If I did, I'm not afraid to talk about it. Uh, I just, I don't want to say this is biblical thinking when I don't really know these issues well enough, to be honest. I, uh, I think we should love our neighbors. I don't think that loving your neighbor means letting your neighbor break into your house and steal all your stuff and then letting them come back and do it tomorrow. Like that's silly. Okay. So loving your neighbor doesn't mean allowing illegal things to constantly happen to you. That's not loving your neighbor. Okay. There's a biblical principle that I, I think applies to this. Um, yet, a nation who doesn't assist and help nations around them. God definitely comes down on that in the Old Testament. We have times where God's rebuking nations because they aren't helping their, their, the nations near them that need help when they need it. And so there's a case for that as well. Is there some balance between the two? I'm sure. Uh, do I know what it is? No. <laughs> so uh, Deshaun Jeffries has a question. How do you respond to people who use future punishment for not eating and, not, and celebrating holidays um, to Moses to adopt the Mosaic law. I'm sorry, Deshaun, your question is worded in a way that I'm having a hard time following it. Um, how do they use, they use future punishment for not eating and celebrating holidays to Moses to adopt the Mosaic law? I'm, I'm sorry, Deshaun. I, all, I, all, all I can say is, is this in response to the question at the moment, and this might be on target with you a little bit. Um, We're not under the Mosaic law. We're not. And I think the New Testament is very clear, clear, clear on this issue. And it comes up very specifically in different passages like Acts chapter 15 um, uh, in, in particular. Um, also in Colossians and Galatians and things like this. And I think that we're not under the law. If we were under the law, then we should be observing all of it. Every single bit of it. Every single bit we can possibly observe. But we're not. And so we need to be looking at things a little more differently than that. Um, Joey Guthrie. Uh, says uh, John twenty seventeen. Okay, we'll go to the passage and then I'll ask the question. John twenty seventeen is this is after the resurrection and Jesus is speaking to one of the women. He says, um, I think it's Mary, right? Yeah, Mary, Mary Magdalene. Okay, he says to her, "Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God." Okay, so the question is, why did Jesus not want Mary to touch him? Remember that he allowed Thomas to touch him before he went to heaven. Okay, so here's where it comes down to the meaning of this word. Oh, I didn't give you the passage. I read it, but I didn't show you. There it is. It's the meaning of this word cling. Okay, so let me let me give you the interlinear. Um, oh gosh, the interlinear shot me back several verses. Okay, so... The interlinear is going to give us the meaning of this word. Okay, the, well, the, the actual word itself. Um, aptu or apto, that would be like the lexical form. Let me, I really don't want strongs. Here's what I'll do, just for you. 
I'll do, this is in Logos software, I'm going to do what's called the exegetical guide. We're going to bring up a Greek resource so you can find out, my whole point is going to be to show you that the word cling, it doesn't mean don't touch me. It actually means something a little different. So John 17, no, John 20, 17. And I'll bring this over here. Actually, first let me pull up the Greek resource we're going to use. I just got the updated version of Logos, so I'm still getting uh, accustomed to the layout. It's a little bit different than it was before. Um, oh, here's the word, word by word. Oh, I put 1017. It's live. This is live streaming. This is what it is. Okay, do not cling to me. Okay, so um, uh, hop two is the, the Greek that's there, the lexical form of the Greek for those who are interested. It's hop to, and it's a verb, present imperative, singer, tang, 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 but it means to touch firmly or grasp with the hands, sometimes construed by one aspect alone, like touching. So the implication, I think, is that we're getting Jesus. Here's some other ones I'll put on the screen. I know it's very small, but if I, en if I enlarge the font right now, I'm going to lose most of what I'm showing you. So um, these are just different resources that look at the meaning of the word. And it can mean to grab hold of and hold on to, to take hold of, to fasten to, to bind to, as I'm reading some of these definitions, um, to start a fire, different context, obviously. And so the idea, though, is that Jesus is saying, don't cling to me in that sense of don't hold on to me because I have things I have to do. That That's the idea. And I think this makes a lot of sense if we... Um, Imagine her joy at seeing Jesus. I mean, you would have given him a big hug and not wanted to let go, right? I would. And so he's like, I have things I have to do. And so um, I think it makes sense in the context. So Philip Rushing has a question. What is your view on the New Testament, uh, on N.T. Wright's view on Paul and his epistles? Um, I will say I'm mildly opposed, but I don't know enough about N.T. Wright's view to seriously address it because I haven't, he has the, the new perspective on Paul's stuff. Um, I, I disagree from what I've heard so far, but I haven't really read N.T. Wright's work on it. I've only heard talk about it. So I, I don't want to overstate that. Gene Atwood says, um, how do Christians apply Matthew six fourteen and 15 to life situations? To life situations. All right, let me bring that up. Matthew sixteen fourteen, and I will show it to you guys. He says, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, and I went to the wrong verse. I was like, I'm like, I'm not sure that this is what you were asking about. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Um, I think the, the application is, I think the application is obvious. I think it's just really uncomfortable for us. The application seems to be that Jesus is saying, you're not going to be forgiven if you don't forgive others. That's pretty extreme, right? It is. I think that, that I think that that's the application though. Um, now you could say, um, oh, but this, this doesn't count for forgiveness. Once you're in Christ you'll be forgiven even for the things that you wouldn't have been forgiven for outside of Christ. And you could try to say that in Matthew six here, and there might be a case you can make for that. Um, what I do with my understanding of theology is I take this with other scriptures and other ideas in the Bible. And I say the, the acts of, of, of a Christian are an outgrowth of the work of the Holy spirit in our lives. Like Philipp, Philippians says, right? Um, he who works in you to will and do according to his good pleasure, God is working in me to do these things. So if I have the Holy Spirit working in my life, this act of forgiving others is a natural outgrowth of that work, right? God is the one who's compelling me, who's um, uh, enabling, empowering me to do these things. So I would say that in light of that, not forgiving others may simply be a big piece of evidence that you are not in Christ in the first place, being unwilling to forgive others. This doesn't mean Christians will never struggle with forgiveness, that's not what I mean. I, don't, I, I think that that would be to take a blanket statement too far. But I do think that it's, um, uh, yeah, 
I think that it's, I think the application is, is pretty obvious. Uh, this doesn't mean you as a Christian, oh, if I have to forgive her, I'm going to lose my salvation in five minutes. Like we shouldn't get paranoid about things or, or lose the security we gain from things like Ephesians chapter one, but we need to take seriously the issue of forgiveness. Um, number 27, if there's a song that's, um, oh, we already did that one. So 28, uh, Katoria says, Christianity and suicide. Is it biblical that God does not give a person more than they can bear? More than they can bear. Um, okay. This is usually the question about suicide is, is can it, what happens to a person when they commit suicide? And this is a whole different kind of question. This is, um, does a person have a life scenario that is so unbearable that they, I'm, I'm assuming here, that they have to commit suicide, that they're like, they're unable to control their actions and commit suicide. And I think the answer is no. Um, but I want to look at the passage that teaches this. Verse 13. Um, no temptation has overtaken you that it is that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It doesn't mean you'll stop being tempted. It means you'll be able to endure the temptation. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the resistance, through God resisting or holding back temptation from being even worse. Because if God wasn't holding it back, it would be even worse, right? Um, I do think that God gives us the ability to go through any situation, and here's the key, without sinning. That's the idea. I'm not talking about sinless perfectionism. It's a completely different issue, uh, which I don't I don't hold to. This is This is to say, even though I feel this bad, I don't have to do that thing. That's the bottom line. And I think 1 Corinthians 10, 13 should give us great hope and courage. Now, let's pretend the opposite's true. Nope, there's lots of times in your life where you have no choice but to sin and you, have, you don't even have control. You're being, you're, being, you're being taken over by temptation and you have no control. Um, that is the lie that many of us believe when we sin and it keeps us in those, in those places of sin. Uh, sometimes I think the battle against sin is, is in many ways a battle over what you will believe about yourself being tempted. And so 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a, a verse to memorize. Um, Face the Truth has a question, and we're almost out of time, guys. So this is going to be winding it up here. I know there's a lot more, but I'm, I'm you know, done fairly good, I think. Uh, Face the Truth says, is it a biblical defensible position to say that God needed Christ's sacrifice in order to cleanse us for the purpose of indwelling us with the Holy Spirit? Is it a biblically defensible position to say that God needed Christ's sacrifice in order to cleanse us for the purpose of indwelling us with the Holy Spirit? Needed? Um... I guess that question might be like, are, is there any hypothetical other scenario that God could have done? You know, like some sort of really different kind of scenario. I suppose it's, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know if I can answer that question because it's like in, in the hypothetical realm of all possible things, is there another possible thing? Um, um, I Actually, I think maybe Jesus answers this for us because what does he say right before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane? He actually maybe answers this. He says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cut pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. So the implication here is that there was no other way. There was no other way. At that state, at that point, with humanity in their fallen state, when Jesus is right there, it's like at that moment, no, there's no other way. This is how it's going to have to be done. Um, that's the implication, I think. So I, I guess I would say... Um, it is a biblically defensible position, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so Ricky Pickering asks, uh, Mike, do you think that you would believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ if it were not for the testimony of God? Um, that's hard to answer. Probably not. Um, I don't... Yeah, I, I would say probably not, Ricky. I'll just give you that answer. Probably not. Um, I think that God's spirit has been at work in me, but I would add that I don't hold to irresistible grace. And that would be the idea that when God is working on you, you automatically will always, you will always say yes. You will always embrace Christ. You will always choose to trust in him. I think that there's people God appeals to who choose to reject him of their own, of their own free will. And so, um, yeah, but I don't think that I would have been saved without him working on me, you know, by his spirit. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. The implication is he's doing this across the board. It's happening to everybody, but not everybody gets saved. So that conviction is not necessarily bringing salvation to everybody. 
Um, okay, I'll take uh, I'll take one more. This is from Sh- Sage Seraph, three fifteen, who says, "I'm dealing with the sin of lust. I keep having this sin, and I don't know how to fix it. I pray every day about this. How can I end this sin? I repent, but I'm still enslaved to sin. I would say a few things, Sage. You are so not alone. You are so not alone. You're representing who knows how many people who are even watching the stream right now. So I'm going to give you guys. This is not is not a quick fix. This is not a one-shot bullet to heal your temptation issues. But here's a few biblical principles that I think you can apply to your situation and that can make a huge difference for you. Here's one. 1 Corinthians 10.13, that verse, I'm going to read it again. As I read it, I want you guys to ask yourselves, for those who feel this temptation, lust, do you believe this verse about your temptation? That no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Step one, you need to believe 1 Corinthians 10.13. Memorize it and recite it to yourself as as you're being tempted. Okay, that's step one. Step two I think Romans 14 tells us make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. No provision. If there's anything in your life that's creating this like space for temptation to continually be hitting you, you need to deal with that thing. Um, make no provision for the flesh. You're making provisions. Like I go camping, I bring provisions. I, I pack certain things with me that enable me to go camping. Are there certain things you're doing that are enabling your sin in unhealthy ways? Then you got to deal with that. You got to take a step against that because in a sense, you're deciding to sin before you sin because you keep allowing these things place in your life where they don't belong. Um, so I, I would say, consider that. Um, Jesus talks about this when he talks about the whole like gouging out your eye. He doesn't mean actually gouging out your eye. That's not the the application. The application is that there might be something of great value to you, yet it's causing you sin. You need to deal with that thing. That's the application. Um, and nowhere in the Bible do we have, uh, in the New Testament, we don't have any like eye-gouging experts helping the early church. Um, uh, yeah, that's a misunderstanding of the passage. Um, so, But step two is that, is deal with the provision. Don't make provision for it. And then also we get in the book of Job, this, this great statement where he says, and it applies to guys, it applies to girls, but it's coming from a guy here and he says, I will not look upon a young woman with lust. Now, sometimes um, you're putting images before you, okay? You're putting images in front of you that are temptation, that are that, that you know are causing you to be triggered, so to speak. And I would say, don't put those things in front of you in the first place. That's dealt with in other passages of scripture. Like, um, uh, I will set no wicked thing before me. Uh, the text that says, I can't remember the verse reference, but I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And that's the idea. I'm not going to make provision. I'm not going to put something deliberately in front of me that I know is going to stumble me, whether whether it stumbles others or not. I'm not going to watch that show because I know it has things in it that are stumbling me, uh, that are leading me towards sin. I won't put that stuff deliberately in front of me. I won't go to that website. I won't, I won't go to that event or whatever. That, but on the other side, there's times where you can't help it, right? There's just, it's life. There's just things you're going to see that you're going to be confronted with that you have no control over. And for that, we have the quote from Job where he says, I will not look upon a a young woman with lust. There he's realizing there's going to be young women he sees, but he refuses to let himself look upon them with lust. And for this, I say, you have to stop the sin of lust at its beginning, not at its final end. You tend to want to fight it, many of us, at its final end. I'm not going to... fall into this or that thing at the final end, whether it's fornication with a person or some, you know, thing you're doing, you know, on, on, online or whatever. You're thinking that's the battleground, but I'm saying the battleground started when that first lustful look took place. That was the battleground. If you fight it when it's small, it's easier to fight. You put out a fire when it's small, it's much easier to put out. You wait till it's a raging fire and then you're like, why can't I put out the fire? That's why it feels so overwhelming. That's why I'm enslaved because I wait too long to try to fight it. I feed it and then fight it, but you have to starve it from the start. Um, so those would be some, some tips I would give to you. I hope those things help. Um, the, the, the trust in the text of scripture, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, remembering that you are, you are uh, to reckon the old man dead with Christ as Romans 6 
talks about, I think, read Romans 6 to refresh your mind on these truths and start your fight against sin at the start of temptation, not when it's a raging wildfire in your life. I hope this stuff helps you guys. I really do. And thank you guys for joining me. Um, if you if you love this ministry and you love what I'm doing, um, I'm full-time now. And uh, I, I am depending on support from people because I don't want to put up a paywall. I'm not going to put up like, you have to pay five bucks to watch this live stream. You have to pay 10 bucks to listen to this Bible study. You got to pay 30 bucks to go through my Jesus in the Old Testament series. I want it free. For it to be free, I, I have to receive a certain amount of donation. So I don't want anyone to feel obligated. But if you want, if you love this ministry and you want to support what I'm doing, my continued work, then you can go to BibleThinker.org or you could just go to the video description. There's a link down there below. Um, yeah, that's it. God bless you guys. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And if you don't know the Lord, I encourage you, start seeking him. Get on your knees before God and seek him and say, God, I want to know you. I want to know your grace. I want to know your forgiveness. I want to know the truth of Christ. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God is good. He has saved my soul, changed my life. And I pray that you would experience that too. Lord bless you. Thank you.